The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Uh, On the Money, I'm Paul Rudy. I'm here today. We have a light version today, or a light cast version. Uh, Not lightweight, (laughs) but just fewer. I have David Rudy, Certified Financial Planner Professional, with me at Rudy Wealth Management. David, did you miss me? We were gone in Texas. It was really quiet in the office. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know what you're trying to say. Brian was gone, too. And I'm going to try to get Dr. Fred Gertz on uh, the line. Dr. Fred is traveling today on the way to California, I think. Is that right, Fred? Fred, are you there? I'm going to try to get Fred. Fred, are you there? I can hear you. Oh, good. Uh, so you're traveling today, but we have you on. We may just have you on for a condensed period since you're traveling. Uh, but there are certainly right. some things I want to get to. Uh, one was your article. Yeah, I actually, uh, I'm traveling longer than I expected, so I have more time than I thought. So anyway, oh, okay. I'm fine. Okay, okay good. Uh, anyway, so you can call us in with your questions at three. Call in with your questions at three five six nine three nine seven, or you could text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at three five one five three five seven. You can also email your question to talk at wdws dot com. And we also want to welcome those turning in tuning in on Facebook Live. Sorry, you have to see me like this. It's important <laughs> to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, Fred, one of the things I saw was your article, even though I was traveling on the 529 plans. Uh, and there's Right. And, uh, and we might leave it at this, Fred, because there is quite a bit of background noise. Uh, you know, that was something we've talked about before, but it looks like that program's really in some pretty big trouble. Right. That's the prepaid the only, tuition, the, the prepaid tuition yeah, side. The, yeah, the 529 plan is fine. The uh, prepaid tuition plan has some uh, serious problems that we've talked about in the past. And the problem is that uh, the funding is just not there. They originally, uh, they originally uh, started the plan with the expectation that tuition would be fixed in the future, but tuition has gone up much more than the... Uh, much more than the uh, expectations. So it's sort of like an underfunding of a pension plan where they don't have enough money in the uh, program to pay off all the promises. And the uh, difference is, though, that the state of Illinois is legally not necessarily responsible for that. So it's a very sad thing for the people who are involved in that they've uh, paid, they expected to have their tuition taken care of, and may not be the case now. Yeah, and again, I, I did miss—I misspoke on that. I didn't mean the five twenty-nine. That's the defined more of the contribution where you put your own money in, and that's that seems to be as solid as ever. And I have zero concerns about that program. Well, uh, do you have any concerns about right. that side? I I frequently get Fred as an aside from clients or typically grandparents that are trying to pitch in and help with grandchildren's education. They even worry a little bit about the five twenty-nine side of it, and I I've always assured them that. At least I have zero concerns about that. Well, how, what are your feelings? No, there's, there's absolutely no, there's absolutely no concern about that in regard to the uh, uh, soundness of the plan. the The problem with the five twenty nine plan is that you're basically uh, depending on the investments, so the investments are not guaranteed. So, if the market crashes or something of that sort, 
uh, your assets would go down. But sure. absolutely no problem about uh, being underfunded. So it's like a, a defined uh, contribution plan where you have to depend upon the performance of your, your assets. Okay, I, I just want to be sure about that. And it seems like the economy is still rolling along. You know, it wasn't six or seven weeks ago. Everybody was uh, almost seemed like near certainty that the economy was maybe going into a recession and, and, and a lot of that talk. Uh, very little recession talk. In fact, I haven't seen the word recession uh, in articles for, oh, maybe several weeks now. No, I don't think so. Uh, again, uh, somewhere, sometime, someplace, there'll yeah. be a recession, but uh, there's nothing particularly on the horizon now. It's natural to uh, uh, start thinking about that because we've gone now 10 years of expansion, and that's a very long time. But there's nothing that says that uh, 10 years is the max. So, again, it's, it's always a concern. But as uh, we've said many times, uh, even if you knew one was uh, coming, there's not a whole lot uh, you'd have to do or should do, aside from simply sticking with your plan. It's just interesting to see how the sentiment turns. And I noticed I read an article where Jane, Jamie Dimon, I think it was uh, on CNBC's uh, website, who's the CEO or chairman of uh, J.P. Morgan. Yeah, J.P. Morgan. And in his article of course it's just one person's opinion but it was certainly the other side saying look this thing this this economy could rock and well not rock and roll those are my words not his this economy could uh continue to uh defy the recession for years to come i'm paraphrasing and we're also uh sort of the top of the ladder you think everything thinks the united states has uh all the problems but if you look at uh expectations about growth the only uh the only place where uh, uh, growth is expected to be higher is New Zealand and Australia. The rest of the world, at least the rest of the developed world, the uh, um, the uh, uh, U.S. economy is predicted to grow faster than almost everyone else. Yeah. So, and I mean, I did notice, though, uh, and that is certainly true, David, that uh, it's not just the U.S. stock market. That, and we're going to talk a bit about this today, but even the even the international side of the component for the global stock market is really starting to do a lot better. And that could add to maybe, you know, returns of investors at the same time. Uh, speaking of which, yeah, that's a little bit slow. go ahead, Fred. That's been slow the last several, that's been slow the last several years. So there may be a catching up there as well. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say it's about time. Yeah. It's been years. Literally when, when speaking from a stock market standpoint, if you look at relative performance, uh, the, there's been quite a lag on the international side outside of the U S and that'll certainly be for global investors. Uh, it will be certainly be, uh, a welcome sign. And I just noticed I had sent the guys, Fred, uh, Oh, I think it was not this past Friday, about a week ago, Friday. I said, Hey, the people that are in a balanced type of portfolio, 60% stocks globally, 40% short-term high-quality bonds, should be at an all-time new high. And I noticed that on an equal weight basis, both the Standard & Poor's 500 Index and the NASDAQ Index are at new highs. And uh, it's, and, and the, it's really been uh, quite a bit of participation. It's not just a handful of stocks. In fact, those FANG stocks that were kind of driving it up, all-time new highs, and were, everybody was saying that's only because those five or six stocks are doing well. They've actually been lagging, and so it'd be interesting to see what happens if those catch fire again. Uh, volatility, at the same time, has been unusually low, one of the least volatile starts of the year in the past 90 years. Um, you know, it's been barely more than a 2%. I, I can't think of a market move this year that's been, uh, you know, above or below 2%, either positive or negative. 
And if you go back the past 40 years, to show you, you put this in some sign, uh, sort of proportionality over the past 40 years, all but two uh, years have seen a draw- drawdown of at least 5%. So your typical intra-year decline is on average is about 14%, but if you start slicing and dicing it, I mean, it's it's even been a while since we've had a 5% uh, drawdown. And uh, I did notice on the way to work, Dave, that the Standard & Poor's 500 index is only maybe a half percent from its all-time high. So, and again, if people have been reinvesting dividends, they should be at an all-time high uh, even as of today. So that's doing a lot better for, I'm sure, people. When we think of back going into Christmas Eve, which was, you know, everybody said it was the worst Christmas Eve day for the stock market ever. Uh, there's quite a bit of panic and a, quite a bit of concern going into the Christmas and the holiday season, New Year season, and that all seems to have evaporated. And uh, certainly, clients are feeling better after that. And uh, so, we always like that because you know it impacts us too. I, I mean, it's nice when it shoots right back up about as quick as it fell. But I think you know, Doctor Gertz is always quick to bring up like that. That doesn't always happen, so it's important for people to be mentally prepared for a decline that sticks around a little bit longer. That's not a market call whatsoever. It's just saying, look, that happens sometimes. It's not a guarantee that it's always going to shoot back up like a rocket, but enjoy it when it does happen. Well, <clears throat> the other thing uh, I... Yes. Go I ahead, Fred. You were, uh, also, you were uh, three or four months ago, you were right, too. You said you thought it was over. I didn't think it was over, and it turned out that it uh, was pretty much over. So, again, you weren't calling the market in terms of changing people's plans but, no uh, uh, your optimism actually uh, panned out it didn't seem to me fred that uh what was happening in the stock market in december and, and late november it just seemed to be disconnected from the fundamentals and the facts that, that i saw around me it just didn't seem to make sense to me and earnings looked good and you know i i was i continued to the kids don't like it when i give my you know we're not supposed to have a market opinion um but i felt you know, strongly that we'd see all-time new highs this year, and it looks like, in a sense, we have already. Uh, Fred, I'm going to let you go because there's quite a bit of background noise. Right. And if that's okay, okay with you. Good to talk to you. Okay. All right. Thanks, Fred. Uh, all right. Thanks, Fred. Uh, sorry to have to uh, drop Dr. Fred Gertz, but, uh, again, if, if, you know, the background noise is bothering me a little bit. And I, I know when I listen, if somebody even has a bad uh, line when uh, during Penny for Your Thoughts, it sometimes bothers me. So I want to be sensitive to people uh, uh, that, you know. Now I want to get back to, even though we're all cheerful here with the stock market essentially at all-time new highs, um, that May and June are typically not the friendliest months, which doesn't mean anything. It's just saying, look, you know, don't be stunned if there's a, a pullback here in May and June. It's, again, this is not a show about forecasting or anything. It's really more about being emotionally prepared. Don't get too intoxicated. The fact that, you know, uh, we've already made up the ground that was lost since sep- the peak of September of last year. Uh, it's still always a bumpy ride, and we have to be mentally prepared. But one of the things I've noticed, and I wrote a blog about this, or if I didn't, I'm, it's, it's on my list to write probably this week. Um, it's kind of with this idea that the the stock market, every, you know, it's been overvalued since I got in this business in 1984 when the Dow finally crossed above a thousand. And this is certainly a bull market that has been not well liked. Some people would say it's the most hated bull market uh, in U.S. history. But even this year, even though here we are, we've had such an amazing first quarter. It's continued 
to go up another two to three percent just this month alone. And what have investors been doing? Uh, pretty much in bulk, they've been selling into it. They have they've not been embracing this bull market at all. And in the context of of my experience, I'd be surprised though anything's possible. This is not how great bull markets end. Uh, oh, so David Paul just said, "Okay, you guys are on it." So our video on Facebook just uh, dropped off a bit. Uh, David, um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I know you're trying to get our Facebook Live back online, and we'll do that. But and while David's doing that, I've become. I decided that uh, I'm going to write more frequent blogs. Oh, and then I see we have a call. Stan, we'll get to you in just a minute. And so you can always go to RudyWealth.com. Uh, and I'm trying to now pencil out two to three. Three may be aggressive, but a couple of, of short blogs. Just my not current thinking about markets, just current thinking about things, about what I'm observing. Um, I just wrote one, and we may talk about it today. It's a, our financial advisor is worth a 1% fee. I wrote, I've probably written four or five just in the last 10 days. Uh, all kinds of things, certain things about just beha more behavioral aspects of investing, uh, things that I think will actually help people uh, become better investors, uh, more from a psychological dynamic. But we're, uh, I don't know how long Stan's been waiting, hopefully not too long. Stan, you're on the air. Welcome to Paul Rudy's On The Money. How are you doing, Stan? I'm doing good. No, I haven't been on all that long. Good. I just thought I'd uh, use your program to call and uh, take a victory lap, if you don't mind. If it's a short uh, lap, Stan. How about a short victory lap? <laughs> it is a short okay. lap. Last year, uh, I think it was the second quarter, we had a 4.2% GDP growth rate. Yes. And the conservatives were all agog about how great the, the growth rate was. And I pointed out that it was a one-off. And uh, I said that the annual report growth would, would be less than 3% as it had been under Obama because we're still in the Obama economy. And a lot of people pushed back against me. But now that we know what the growth rate was for last year, 2.9%, I was right. Uh, we'll give you some stars on that, Stan. Um, I'm willing <laughs> to go that far for you. Now, in, in, from a perspective standpoint, 2.9 is better than it had been prior to that. I'm not taking sides on who, who's to blame or who's not, and I'm not going to give Trump credit or not credit or Obama credit for having less than that uh, for most of his tenure. But uh, but you're right. And, you know, I think any you – know, Fred was certainly on this too. I think he was in your camp. I don't think he got googly-eyed thinking it was going to be that. In fact, he was always pretty steady of saying, eh, I don't, I don't think that's the <laughs> – getting to 4% or even 3% is very hard right now. And, but you were right, Stan. I'll give you credit for that. And now I'm going to well, get notes you, saying I was nice to Stan, and I'm going to get notes about, you know, hey, you were nice to Stan. You're not allowed to be nice to Stan. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Stan. Well, conservatives don't usually deal well with the truth. So, you know, you got to expect that sort of stuff. Or at least your uh, version. Come on, Stan. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't know that we uh, any of us really know the truth. We all have our we all have our views, and we, you know we all have our biases, and uh, probably somewhere well, there, in be, probably somewhere in between lands the truth. There is there is data, and data is the truth because it's backed up by facts. I understand, Stan. Uh, but when look, Obama took the yeah when Obama took the when Obama took the White House, we had a negative nine percent GDP yeah. GDP growth rate. I understand. And he Stan. ended his presidency with a two point two percent. 
positive GDP growth rate, which is a pretty darn good uh, thing. Right. And we're still in that 2% uh, GDP growth rate range. All right, Stan. Uh, and look, only if I seem like I'm uh, being dismissive, it's just because I'm really trying to focus the show a little different direction. But your call was your call was welcome, and I'm going to give you a couple of stars. I'm not going to give you five, but I'm going to give you two or three. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Anyway, I always like to have a good time with Stan. Uh, he, he, uh, Stan has strong opinions and and passion, and you know I think I like I enjoy that part. I a lot of times I am on a complete different side of Stan. Uh, of course, I'm all over the map, you know, politically speaking. But uh, uh, anyway, we certainly have we're not we weren't not extrapolating that 4.2 percent print in real GDP, but it was certainly an indication. And I still say the animal spirits are much more released today than they were uh, three or four years ago. I'm not and 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 part of that is just because we've had less regulation. Uh, less headwinds for business people. I'm, I've been a business person for 35 years. Uh, I feel it to some degree, but I do. I can sense the animal spirits being unleashed, and I think that has trick uh, has trickled into why we're seeing the economy do so well, companies doing so well, earnings at all time highs, dividends at all time highs, and household net worth at all time highs. Um, I don't assign all that to any one administration, uh, good or bad. Just I think if you get out of the way of business people, uh, they tend to produce more. Some people don't like it. Some people don't like the casualties of that production. <laughs> anyway, we're getting way off on a tangent. Sorry, David. David's looking at me like. <laughs> so uh, I didn't what have is, much much to add to that. I, so I was just listening. Anyway, you can again you can call us three five six nine three nine seven if you have a call. Um, one of the things I'm, I told you I'm going to do an audible in the show today because I think it's I think it's something a lot of people think about. We were talking about retiring early, and you said it's it's kind of this fire movement, financial independence, retire early is one brand of it, and it's just it's an interesting. You've been at this now. You've been in the uh, in the financial field now for almost seven years. Uh, most of those with me dealing with real people in real retirements and seeing it all up close. Um, What's your spin on this? I'm not going to call it an obsession. That wouldn't be right. But there's a certain uh, it's it's gaining a lot more traction in articles that you see It's, It's being published a lot more about this idea of what it is to have a lot of options at a very early age. Some people might call it early retirement. Um, kind of what's your take on that and where's all this kind of coming from and going and the pros and the cons, just kind of the stuff we were talking about in the car on the way here. Yeah, I think there really are. There's some really good aspects to it and then maybe some bad aspects. And I think a lot of the bad aspects might uh, come from people misinterpreting what a lot of these these authors are writing about because I think the risk that you run is always delaying gratification and scrimping and saving on things that even bring you happiness now so that you can retire and, quote, do nothing at, you know, a relatively young age. And honestly, I don't think that's what the movement's about. I've been listening. I was telling you a couple, to a couple podcasts of people that are well-known, uh, early retiree-type writers and authors. And You mentioned a couple of them, Money Mustache. Yeah, Mr. Money Mustache is one of them. He's one of the most well-known. And then I've been listening to a podcast. It's called The Mad Fientist. Yeah, I've read, read, I've read some of his and, work. Uh, I like the term that they tend to use is instead of retirement, it's financial independence. And, and whether you're looking at early retirement 
or just retiring at a normal age. I actually prefer that term over retirement. Me too. By a long shot, just because people like having something to do, and especially for people who retire on the younger end. And and when I say younger, I mean, you know, we've had people retire in their 50s. Right. And, you know, at a certain age, you're still youthful. You still have energy. You want to do something, and you want to be productive. And I was talking about earlier, Mr. Money Mustache basically had a alluded to the fact that, you know, the secret to early retirement in this whole movement is that almost no one who retires early stops working completely. You know, they, they earn income to some degree or another. Um, so I do think, like I said, the main risk is just delaying all gratification. I think the benefits are it's getting people to focus on being frugal, really clearly assessing what expenditures bring them happiness and what are just kind of extraneous things that don't really bring them happiness and get in the way of their financial independence. And one of the things you talked about that I I think is worth discussing today is kind of these, we call them levers, but this idea, if you, if you're really thinking that you you're trying to retire, maybe a little ahead of schedule or uh, you're, maybe you're getting closer to retirement and you just have this fear. um, And, what is it you can do? I mean, you can only save so much at that point. Your allocation at the end doesn't do much. Uh, but part of this is that kind of, I call this this crossroads between um, saving a lot of money and frugality. And I, I talk to, and, and look, we deal with a lot of the millionaire next door type. You know, maybe they're, maybe they're a little bit shy of it or a little bit over, but I call them the millionaire. Just pretty average people that did pretty average stuff. But they were either good savers or they were frugal or both. And I've always explained it this way. If you're a big saver, you're going to force yourself to be more, you know, artificially more frugal than you could have been. If you're just naturally more a frugal person, you're probably going to save more. But either way, it gives you much more, many more options at a much younger age. Right. And that's what I was going to say. Think of the result of that being frugal and spending less now. Not only are you accumulating more money. But you need less money to replace your spending. Explain that when you explain to me. You talk about Michael Kitts on a podcast saying about the withdrawal rate and you know and the impact of that. Yeah. So if you use and I've written a whole article on why you can't necessarily rely on the four percent rule, but um, just for the sake of an example, he used basically the four percent rule, which is withdrawing four percent of your portfolio balance. And he was saying, look, if you're not quite ready or able to fully replace your income or the income that you need, there's kind of there's different solutions. And one of them is, well, if you can pick up $10,000 of part-time income, that's like adding, you know, using the 4% rule, $250,000 to your investment portfolio. So it might shave a couple years off of work if you were trying to basically replace your income fully. Um, instead, maybe you leave the job that you don't, completely love and you you find something you really enjoy and, and make ten thousand dollars a year or alternatively if you can find a way to cut your expenses ten thousand a year that's two hundred and fifty thousand less that you need to basically fund your spending so there are alternatives to just working longer or saving more it's well you can basically get the same result by working a different job very part-time or 
reducing your expenses a little and bit. you said but there's this you have to guard against this you only get one life in your 20s and you only get one life in your 30s and you only get one life in your 40s etc uh this you know minimizing regret at the same time but what these people are saying is yeah but those are things and kind of how you approach that or how they kind of talk about approaching that right i think like i said the this kind of people will bring up straw man arguments and and i think the argument against the the extreme frugality and kind of early retirement movement is well you only get one life you need to enjoy yourself in your 20s and 30s and these people say look i'm enjoying myself the things that really bring me happiness are you know my relationships with my friends and family and my free time to spend on my hobbies and you know just pursuing my passions it's not going out and buying a car or having the biggest house i can afford and there's research to back that up too so you know if you look at research into the things that make us happy and kind of it's the whole field of positive psychology what they find is that you know when good things happen to you like you make a big purchase or you get a big raise what happens is you get this initial boost and happiness, but then you basically go back down to your baseline and they, they call it hedonic adaptation. And the same thing kind of goes for, for bad things in your life. So people overestimate the impact of kind of good things and also the impact of bad things. Um, but the takeaway there is, you know, people think, oh, if I'm not buying a new car or if I'm not buying the biggest house I can afford, then in some way I'm sacrificing my happiness. And these people argue, if anything, it's going to make you happier because you're less financially stressed, you have more freedom. If you want to take a different job that pays less because you enjoy it more, you have that ability. Versus if you build in all these really high expenses into your life, you really strap yourself. You have to have a high income, and there's only certain jobs that provide high income. So you start limiting yourself. Yeah, you know, I think we all deal with these things differently. And when I talk about things, I really mean things, buying stuff and lots of stuff. Uh, it's really tempting in our, particularly at our younger age. It's kind of this, we may, whether we're doing it consciously or not, this keeping up with the Joneses. And I always think, what I've learned now that I'm almost 60 is the Joneses can't keep up with the Joneses. So I, I might as well not try. I, I even know now, maybe it is a function of age, but you know, I'm at my highest earnings ever at this point in my life, and I'm at my lowest expenses ever in my life. I still drive a 12-year-old Chevy Suburban with 215,000 miles on it. My wife drives a 2005 Lexus. You know, we have a small house payment. That's it. Um, and and it, and and I can tell people in my experience. Um, and you guys have heard me tell you guys, look, it's okay to make a lot of money. It's not, and I'm not suggesting I make a lot of money. That's not my point. But I, I say it's okay to make a lot of money. It's not okay to need to. Those are two different things. And the one thing, what is the one thing we've probably noticed more than anything for the clients that are 55 or 60 years old that have the option to do what they can control their own time for the first time in their life? I mean, would you would you agree with me that it's they, they they never really earned all that much money, but they were just a little more frugal than the the people they work next to? Yeah, I mean that's the only way to get there. To be honest, it's it's just it's math. You know, you have to save to accumulate money. You to save, you have to spend spend less money than you make. So it's kind of common sense. Do you think and, it's because people have such a hard time because they don't know how to price it? In other words. They really don't know what that 
a more frequent car, new car purchase, what that is really costing them at age 55 or 60 or 65? A combination of that, and I think people just have a tough time prioritizing their future self over their current self. It's like, you know, who knows how I'm going to feel 50 years. I don't really care that much about 50-year-old David, but 28-year-old David wants to, you know, buy this new car or, or you know, do something that is basically a big expenditure. Um, the advantage that I always talk about that I have is I'm around retirees every day, and I see people who, who – basically reap the rewards of their frugality during their their working years and i i see how how much that pays off and how happy these people are and more than anything it's just they're not stressed about finances and that's kind of where i look at saving is it's not just about retiring it's about you know even in the moment it's having that safety net so that you're not stressed if you have uh, an unexpected expense or you lose your job or something. It's it's just kind of security and it's freedom to pursue other jobs if you want to pursue another job. So there's benefits besides just pure retirement to, you know, just being somewhat frugal. Even along the way. It's not all the benefits are not just when you're suddenly 55 or 60 or 65. It's you're 30 and yes, your friends have a new BMW and you're still driving your old car and maybe you're in a lesser home or an apartment. Um, but there's certain benefits to knowing that, you know, you don't have the stress that the, the guy that or the lady that owned, you know, he or she earned twice as much as you, but they're stressed out every day. I mean, and if they're stressed out when they're young, they're probably going to be stressed out when they're older because most people don't change. Well, and then the other thing I hear from people commonly is I, I mentioned a lot of people who reach financial independence still choose to continue working because there's a social component to working. It feels good to do something that you're good at. Usually you get pretty good at your job after years and years of doing it. Um, and it just gives you kind of a sense of purpose and productivity. So a lot of people choose to keep working, but you have a little different attitude when you don't need that paycheck. And you start making different decisions and you start behaving differently. And you maybe you go to your boss negotiating, say, hey, well, could I work you know, until 3 p.m. each day, or could I work four days a week or three days a week instead of five, knowing that if they say no, well, you can just leave your job, or if, if they want to fire you because you're not working full-time, you're completely okay under those scenarios. So I heard a guy describe it as office space syndrome. So for the people who have seen the movie Office Space, it's this guy, he basically quits caring about his job, and then he ends up getting raises and things. Because, Didn't they hypnotize him or something? Yeah, they, they hypnotize him, and, and I don't remember all the details, but he just starts speaking more candidly to his bosses and just kind of doing whatever he wants, and just he's more pleasant to be around, and it ends up he actually becomes more successful in his job, and he gets raises and things. And anecdotally, I've heard of people experiencing that. Once they reach financial independence, they have a more positive attitude, which employers like, their coworkers like them more, and they start actually sometimes making more money and getting raises after they become financially independent. It's interesting to see how many times we'll tell somebody they could retire today, um, and they're stunned because they're, they just don't think in those terms. But yet they still go back to work, but they go back to work. From that day forward, they go back to work differently. And I've also noticed uh, just the overall, just because of the less stress and the happiness, and now the realization that because – They've been reasonable in their, you know, their standard of living, and they've been saving, 
and saving is important, and of course, then how you save is important. Maybe we'll get to that in a minute. But they also tend to be begin mentoring the younger people around them, and you know, telling them, "Look, I, I my financial advisor told me I could retire," and the, people are stunned, and they say, "Well, how could you even? How could that be?" And then they start mentoring them and saying, "Look, you guys need to do what I did, and you need to save." They're not they're not lecturing; they just seem to be happy to mentor a little bit. But there's there's quite a movement and a lot of focus on this financial independence, retire early. I get it. I think there are a lot of good attributes to it. This, you know, I think a lot of people look at it as, oh, it's a goal. I want to retire by forty. It's kind of well, yeah. Everybody you know is going to be working. You know, you're gonna, you're, you know, when you think about that. In fact, I've had. A very successful friend of mine who sold his company at a very young age, in his late 20s, early 30s. And finally, he he told me, and he said, I just found myself going to Lowe's and Home Depot and, and buying stuff a lot because everybody else I know my age is working. I mean, literally, you start thinking about some of the, the things. It really doesn't come down to quit working. It's have the option to do control your time negotiate the job that you want to negotiate be in the field you wanted to be in and i think certainly at those people you have to envy the people that are in that position yeah absolutely i think it's freedom is another way to think of it it's just kind of freedom to do what you want when you want to do it and if that's working then that's great you keep working if it's not working then don't work and it's just nice to have that option and that autonomy and control over your own life and everyone's different so we see all kinds of different lifestyles once people hit that financial independence point. And I think one of the the biggest recommendations I have for listeners is think about what you're going to do with your time when you do reach financial independence. Don't just hit it and then try to figure it out at that time because you'll end up kind of sitting around bored for the first month or so figuring it out. And I think it is important to figure out how am I going to actually spend my time each day what are the things I want to accomplish during my life? And do that at least several months before you actually pull the trigger and retire. Well, one thing's for sure, as I look back, things don't really bring you happiness, uh, as, at least not near as much as you think. And <clears throat> it's always kind of a depressing thought. I just remember my philosophy teacher back in college saying, it's, you only passionately love things until you have them, which is kind of a depressing notion. <laughs> it kind of ruined the rest of my life. But not really. But I know, you know, it kind of makes sense, uh, and it has a certain ring to it. It's just kind of this, this sense of perspective of, okay, this thing that I'm about to buy that I think is going to make me happy, uh, I think you have to know the other side of it and say, okay, what's, it, what's the true price of this thing I'm about to purchase? And, you know, as part, and I think you can think about that is well what does it add stress to my life just by owning it or because maybe i have less money in my safety net or maybe i'm borrowing money to do this and i shouldn't do that uh and uh so i think we covered that pretty well i noticed that we do have a caller beverly on line one i think we have beverly Hello. yeah beverly how are you good uh what can we help you with today well, I wanted to announce a 9-11 World Trade Center Memorial Quilt Project that's here at the Hilton Garden Inn in Champaign, Illinois. Okay. And when is that? I normally don't do this on our On the Money show, but I'm certainly willing to let you just briefly tell us the when and where. Well, the where okay. we know, but when. Um, we're here today until 9 p.m. and tomorrow from 9 to 9. 
And you said, remind me again where it is? At the Hilton Garden Inn. Okay. And what will you be doing there? We're showing 300 quilt panels with the names of all the victims from 9-11. Well, how cool is that? Very. Well, well I'm glad you called and let the listeners know. I'm uh, happy you did. And uh, thank you for that. All right. Thank you. All right. All right. Bye-bye. I'm always happy to help. I mean, how could you turn that down? I mean, what a mean guy I would be. <laughs> you know, kind of on that, and again, this is kind of reflections of my 35 years, I suppose, and your five years with me, or close to five years, of seeing people at a reasonably young age being able to control their own time. Some people call it retirement. I call it retirement optionality. You like the financial independence uh, early in life. There was an article, and unfortunately, I didn't keep, I can't cite it. I just kind of copied it over. I think it was uh, on CNBC, but there was an article <clears throat> that says five things that rich people do, and it's kind of interesting. It goes along with this. Uh, for instance, Warren Buffett eats breakfast each day at McDonald's. Each morning, he asks his wife to set out $2.61, $2.95, or $3.17, which determine which breakfast he gets. When I'm not feeling quite so prosperous, I might go with the 261, which is the two sausage patties. Anyway, it's kind of it's kind of cute, but that's more anecdotal. Uh, a lot of people uh, are very careful, and it gets into these habits here because you know they've either had wealth taken away from them from them at one time, or they just don't see that it's particularly permanent. Um, this is particularly true of the top 10% of the income spectrum, according to the 2015 survey of affluence and wealth by research by a polling firm, u.gov. Uh, well, here's one of them. Uh, one, you'll find them in the aisles of Target and Walmart. One in three people with a net worth of more than $5 million say they shop at Walmart. Nearly half say they shop at Costco and four in 10 at Target. Uh, so that's interesting. I guess it doesn't. It's hard to go anywhere and not have a Walmart and need, you know, considering that Walmarts also have groceries. That may explain part of it. Uh, the second one is they drop coin at the dollar store. So these dollar general type stores, uh, nearly one in five dollars spent there is contributed by the affluent. The dollar store value proposition. Okay, so that was from the uh, executive vice president of checkout tracking. Uh, the third is they tool around town in a Ford. And so they give a story about one of these big quarterbacks. Uh, driving Kirk Cousins drives a GMC Savannah, but the data released August 2016 by CarSight Edmonds found the most popular car among people with incomes above 250,000 a year was a Ford F Series uh, F, uh, followed by the Jeep Grand Cherokee and the Jeep Wrangler. You have a Jeep Grand a Jeep Grand Cherokee, Dave. I didn't know you were in the top fluent people. <laughs> I wish I had that income. Among the ten <laughs> top. Uh, most popular vehicles in America's wealthiest neighborhoods, half are non-luxury vehicles. Again, the millionaires next door that walk into our office, that explains most of them. They clip a lot of coupons. People making over 100000 were actually more likely than those making less to use coupons. A survey of more than 8,000 shoppers by dealsitedeals.com. And finally, this is the one attribute, but maybe that's why they have this money. They just don't give away as much. They give a lower percentage of their income to charity, but probably bigger dollars, but lower percentage of their income. Middle-class Americans give a far bigger share of their discretionary income to charities than the rich. Uh, which looked uh, The data which looked at IRS records found the households earning fifty to $75,000 uh, 
a year give an average of 7.6% of their discretionary income to charity and households making 100,000 more give an average of 4.2%. So better savers, better shoppers, but you know, maybe a little more careful with their purse strings. But then again, there's probably in dollar terms, it's probably a lot of money. Right. Um, okay. So another thing you wrote about recent, no, I guess Paul wrote this blog, but you helped him write it. And I guess it was because Easter eggs gave him the watching, you know, uh, Ryan's little boy, uh, Cooper, hunting for Easter eggs about 12 times at my house because he liked it <laughs> so much that we had to do it over and over and over again, the same eggs, different hiding spots. Um, is, is a, so hunting for Easter eggs is fun, but hunting for lost investments, uh, investment accounts are not. And that's kind of the theme of Paul's blog. And, David, you helped him. Uh You've seen it happen, haven't you? And real, you've you've looked at that up close, and we want to talk a little bit about how to solve that and have it not, you know, create a problem to begin with. And then, you know, where do you go look in case that you may think that you're maybe you're one of your uh, relatives has died, maybe it's typically your parents. Um, you know, are there accounts that we don't even know about? So we deal with this a lot. So just kind of give us your thoughts on that. Well, usually it happens, I would say, from a combination of things. I would say one is old 401ks from employers that just don't get moved over. And that's an easy thing to do, just out of laziness. It's like, well, it's there, it's safe, it's fine. I'll just leave it there. And then it kind of falls by the wayside. And, and there the, may only be a statement once a year in some of these. Uh, and so that, you know, get, they get it and it's been a year and it's been thrown in the trash. And, you know, for the next six months, you don't see any evidence as if you're the person looking after the affairs it may be hard to find yep and then the other thing i see is you know i just have multiple investment accounts at multiple different institutions invested differently and maybe i have these you know whole life insurance policies over here and i have these annuity policies over here so not just different types of accounts but all at different places too but, but and i think so what do you don't you notice uh, with clients as they start nearing retirement, and particularly in retirement, they tend to like this idea of simplifying that issue? Yeah, I, most <clears throat> do. And it just, it's like less mental clutter to have like all these things just out there wondering, you know, how each one's allocated, trying to remember all that. And honestly, I would say though, some people leave things kind of disorganized and in many different places. And that usually works. But it works until the person who handles the finances passes away. And I would say in the vast majority of households I run into, one person tends to handle the finances, particularly like the investments and the assets. And they tend to have a good grasp on things, but then maybe they either die or they have a serious health issue and they have cognitive decline or right. dementia. And then their spouse has no idea where everything is or even beyond that, what is it? Where, you know, what is it invested in? What type of it's account? Like, if it's an annuity, what type of annuity is it? Is it a variable annuity? Is it a deferred annuity? Is it a fixed annuity? Is it an indexed annuity? There's all these different things. If it's a insurance policy, is it a normal whole life policy or like a variable universal life? And so they have no idea. And and as Paul put it. They're basically on a scavenger hunt or an Easter egg hunt trying to figure all this out. And we've had that happen before where, you know, we had the one spouse <laughs> that was handling everything and they had some accounts, you know, like I said, particularly like they had some annuities that they had from back in the day and some insurance policies. And then they had a really serious health issue 
basically couldn't handle that stuff anymore and the, the wife this in this case the wife had you know wasn't sure basically everything that they had and what was in it and so i and i worked with the son-in-law basically to go through and try to decipher all this stuff just based on statements that we're getting and it's a it, it, it's a lot of time and a lot of stress so the answer to that is simplifying but some people are afraid to simplify because they think i can't have all my eggs in one basket in other words i can't simply have one major brokerage firm like a charles schwab or a vanguard or, or firms like that uh because i they think of kind of as a way of diversification we've had this beat into our heads that you can't have all your eggs in one basket but that really shouldn't be a concern if you choose the right custodian in my view right i mean choose a reputable custodian obviously one of the big names vanguard schwab fidelities you know there's there's a number Love. of them um but beyond that i mean you own the underlying assets within your account so even if that particular company goes out of business they're going to find a home for your account somewhere and there's you know you're going to still own those same assets the second thing you put in there was to designate your person uh in quotes uh, that is a person who's going to be responsible for helping you keep track of these types of things. What, how is that done on a blocking and tackling practical standpoint? Well, I think typically it's, it's a child who's financially responsible, but not always. It's just someone that you really trust who's financially responsible and also has a little bit of expertise in handling money and investments and things like that. And the key is to not wait until it's too late. And I would say just this is I have no evidence to back this up, but it seems to me, just based on my experience and observation, almost no one actually does this. But it sure helps with a few people I've seen who do include their children uh, on their finances or a trusted person, you know, a few years in advance. It's like, you know, you don't need to do this when you're 60, but if you hit 80, maybe you start thinking about these things. Or, or maybe even mid-70s. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, once you get into your low 60s, you begin to lose one or every article I read about this issue I've come to the conclusion that um, that they're accurate. Uh, you know, there's different degrees of it, but you know, one to two percent of your cognitive ability goes every year. I think after you turn 65. Uh, I don't know if that's the right number or not, but I can tell you I can see a difference between the 65 year old client and then when they're 75. And I mean, there's of course there's a wide distribution of that, but there is a difference. So I would think by just from my 35 years experience, probably not wait till you're 80, probably by your mid-70s, have that person in place, discuss it with them. And there's software and tools that can facilitate that, is there not? There are, and, and especially for sharing documents, like we use Everplans, which you can, you know, make a deputy, a person, they call it a deputy, where you can share certain documents and information with them. But at the very least, you know, just make sure they know basically what financial accounts you have and where and um, make sure they basically, I don't know, have just a general overview of kind of your financial world so that if something happens to you, they can take over. Maybe that's sitting down and either on a ledger pad or a spreadsheet. Uh, you literally just go through it. Um, you know, one of the things that gets in the way of that, if you know, you think of a 75-year-old today, uh, with a broad brush here, I'm, I'm, I'm brushing with a broad brush, but still it was a generation that tended not to talk about money. Uh, it's just one of these things that ultimately um, you have to make a decision. I'm either going to make this very difficult for my family to piece all this together. And there's a certain danger to that, too. Mm -hmm. uh, or, or we're going to have that conversation. And, and I, I kind of put that up there with where am I going to live? 
you know, as I age, am I going to live in my home? Am I going to live in a retirement community? And for those that are viewing retirement communities, that's best looked upon uh, before it's too late, before you have a big fall. Uh, I get a little angry with some of my clients that keep postponing <laughs> it. You've seen me get angry with clients in my nice way. Uh, but there comes a point that these are just certain things. You may not like to do them. You may not like to go think about being in a retirement home because everybody there is old, you know, and you're 85 too. Uh, you know, I have news for you. You're old too. but uh, And I can get away with that just because they know me so well. But you still can't let that stand in the way because there's too much risk if you do. Right. I mean, just pretending these issues don't exist and ignoring them just makes things worse, not better. And it can be difficult. And it can take a lot of time uh, piecing these estates together if there's not some type of ledger system. And somebody, at least somebody that's knowledgeable that, look, I don't, even if you don't know all the details, you could say, look, I do all my banking with uh, XYZ Bank. Uh David is my financial guy. He knows where, here's his phone number. Here's where, he knows where all my investment accounts are. And here's my, where my lockbox is. So it, you don't have to even get into the details. You could literally just say, okay, I have two insurance policies. Here's the company and here's their phone number. And you don't maybe disclose the amount of cash value or, 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 or face value. And the same thing with your investment accounts. I have five investment accounts at Rudy Wealth Management. Uh, call David, you know, if something happens to me. Uh, so there are ways around it. It doesn't mean you have to disclose everything about your financial world to make this work. Absolutely. And and I think the takeaway or the recommendation that Paul had is, look, if you're not comfortable kind of sharing all that stuff, at least if you can simplify it and have, have things in the fewest places and the fewest number of accounts possible, it'll make that job a lot easier. Even if that's just you writing down all the information and putting it in a sealed envelope in your lockbox and just say, look, you know, kind of like an emergency break glass, go to the lockbox and you'll have every, con every one of my professionals' contacts, phone numbers, what the accounts are, where they are, et cetera. And then finally, I know we put if the accounts are completely lost, uh, fortunately, Illinois has a site. You can search for lost documents. It's uh, icash.illinoistreasurer.gov. You can basically do a Google search for you know lost accounts in Illinois, and you'll get there. But So that's worth looking at. Uh, also, if you are suddenly in a situation where one of your relatives passes and you're kind of the person that's designated as the collector, so to speak, um, you know, that's one thing, even after a year or two uh, passed, you might want to go back to that and see if there isn't something with your name on it, because I've seen that happen a number of times where you think you have everything and you don't quite have everything. Well, we kind of moved around a lot today. Uh, thanks for Dr. Fred Gertz, of course, for calling. It was a condensed version, but uh, he's traveling as usual. There's a lot of people that want Fred's time. We're just one of them. Um, we're always glad to have Dr. Fred Gertz on board. Again, I think uh, everybody should be happier today than they were last Christmas Eve from a financial standpoint with their investments. But remember, uh, it's a permanent uptrend, but it has a lot of sheer terror in between on the way up that permanent uptrend. Uh, so you just have to have the right uh, psychological outlook, the right emotional outlook to realize that there's always bumps and bruises along that. And if you can do that, I think you can become a successful investor. Well, Dave, thanks for joining me today. Now we get to go back to the office and do the real work. But thanks for listening. <laughs> Paul Rudy and David Rudy from Rudy Wealth Management with Paul Rudy's On The Money. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.
fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.